0: We're in Acts chapter 3, I'm just going to read a portion of it together, Acts chapter 3 verse 1, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And then he sang, as most of us have sung when we were younger, and leaping and praising, right? Remember that song? And leaping up he stood, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Father, thank you for this Word. Lord, thank you for Luke who, who wrote this for us. Thank you that we have the work and, and the ministry of these apostles, Lord, empowered by your spirit. And Father, we pray that um, as we look at this narrative today, um, Lord, we would learn from it and our faith would grow because of it, Lord. That our love for Jesus would, would, would uh, increase, and that, Father, our, our reliance upon your grace would also increase. So, Father, thank you for uh, this word. Jesus, be all glory and honor belong to you. And, Father, we pray that your spirit, uh, as it raised this, you know, just did some powerful things in this day, would do powerful things in our lives as well. For your glory and honor, in Jesus' good name, amen. All right, so the kids are dismissed, and we are in a series in the book of Acts, called Spirit Empowered Mission. Um, it was written by Dr. Luke, as I said, and although he was not one of the 12 apostles, uh, he was someone who carefully researched, investigated, interviewed witnesses, and wrote down what took place in the life, death well, the life, the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, so that we today, including in his day, would have an accurate account. An orderly narrative of all, or at least a lot of what Jesus did, all being guided by the Holy Spirit. And as we will see today, and and I, and I, I want to throw this out there: the details of this story, the details, the the accurate kind of um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? This this narrative that gives great details is really a. a, a A sign, it authenticates that this is not, as some of you may have been taught, some sort of legend or folklore. They did not write legends and folklores in that day with such precise detail that you will see in Acts chapter 3. Anyone in that day would have known that what Luke was writing was an eyewitness account of what took place, just like he did in the Gospel, according to Luke, when he talked about all that Jesus began to do and what he taught in that day, all his ministry and his life and his death and his resurrection, him being you know speaking to those eyewitness people who saw that he is now giving us an eyewitness account with details about what Jesus continues to do as the Spirit of God empowers his followers, the church. The book's about the mission of Jesus, and that'll become very evident today. So after Jesus died for our sins on the cross, rises three days later, and he tells his disciples to wait. Wait in Jerusalem for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Ten days after ascension, Pentecost comes, as promised, the Spirit baptizes the believers, they're born again, born anew, and they do just what God said, just what Jesus said they would do. They would be empowered to be witnesses. They will declare what they know to be true. That's what a witness does, gives testimony on what they know to be true. And we see them here today even um, just declaring the reality of all that Jesus is, all that Jesus has done. That by faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, sins can be forgiven, and we can be reconciled to God the Father. And they begin as soon as the baptism comes. Just what Jesus said. They begin witnessing. You remember Pentecost comes? They speak in tongues, an unknown language to them, but known to everybody else. And what are they talking about? The mighty works of God. The mighty works of God. And that's the language of salvation. That's the language of deliverance. And then Peter moves from that, from, from, from that incident, that, that baptism, that, that coming of the Spirit, and he moves to that to he starts sharing with everyone who's there because as people are being baptized with the Spirit, they're speaking in tongues, people say, man, this is an AA meeting that went bad. Everybody seems to be drunk at this place. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. That's not what you see. What you see here is exactly what God said would happen when the Messiah would come. They're speaking in tongues. The Spirit of God descends on everyone. Just what he said is what happened. That's what Peter tells them. And then he turns to them and says, but you, you murdered him. You killed him. You're all sinners. And they're like, that's not good. That's not good. Uh, What what do we do? What do we do? He says, repent. Repent and believe in Jesus. Be baptized. And if you look at your Bibles, chapter 2, Verse 41, so those who received his words were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So Pentecost comes, they're declaring the gospel. It's like, this is all about Jesus, but you murdered him. And they're like, what do we do? Repent. They repent, they believe on Jesus, and they're baptized. Chapter 2, verse 42 and through 47, which we looked at last week, was the outcome of that initial salvation experience they recognize that their sins have been forgiven and then you see them gathering together both in larger places in temples smaller places in their homes and they're worshiping the lord they're breaking uh bread together they're sharing meals together they're praying together they're worshiping together they're witnessing together and look at verse 47 what happens praising god having favor with all the people and again The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It was not a holy huddle. They were filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit propelled them to be on mission, to declare the great and glorious salvation of God. That's exactly what you see. It's this this explosion of the heart, this opening of the mouth, declaring how good and great Jesus is. And I want you to see that this morning. The bond that held them together was the reality that God had come and God had forgiven them all their sins. They understood what Jesus did. And verses 42 through 47 is a response to the gospel. And now as we look this morning and we look at the first miracle recorded for us post-resurrection of Jesus, we should see this narrative as well as a continuation of the witnessing of the followers of Jesus to the work of the gospel. You you have to see that. It's an explosion of the work of the gospel as God now begins to do miracles for a reason. For a reason. We'll look at it under a couple of headings. The first heading we're going to see is the miracle. We'll look at that mostly. Because we're going to talk about, uh, the next point is the message proclaimed. We're going to talk a lot about, the messages, the, the, the gospel is being preached throughout Acts, so we'll get to that in, more great, in greater detail later on, um, particularly both in the temple and when he gets to Acts 17 at Morris Hill, so we'll talk a lot about that. But today I want to focus a lot on the miracle performed, so we'll be there a while, and then we'll work through quickly the message proclaimed, and finally the Messiah's promise. Because God does not perform miracles just to show off. God does not need to show off. There's a reason we're going to see that today. The miracle performed. Look at verse 1 with me. Here's the setting. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So immediately notice that the Jewishness of the apostles are still very much with them. They're going up at the time of prayer that all the Jewish people would gather for prayer. There'd be a morning time of prayer where they would all go into the temple to pray. There'd be a three o'clock, which is happening here, a three o'clock prayer time. And then there's a sunset prayer time that all the Jews would gather who were in Jerusalem to go up to the temple to pray. In this second one here, in this three o'clock prayer time, it was also a time of sacrifice. It's the second of two sacrificial times. So there are a lot of people there the temple is very crowded. And I believe John and Peter knows that. And they're going up declaring and witnessing and sharing Christ as they go to the temple together to, 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 to talk about Jesus and to pray together. And you see very much that they're doing exactly what their culture, what they were raised to do as a Jew to go up for a time of prayer. And, and obviously this has changed for them now as Christians declaring Jesus is the Messiah. And what's interesting Just throw this out there because I like interesting facts. Um, The third hour, according to John 19, is the same hour while Jesus was on the cross, cried out with a loud voice, it is finished, and dies for our sins. I don't know, I just thought it was cool. But anyway, verse 2, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, it's called the beautiful gate to ask for alms of those who were going into the temple. Verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go in, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him and did John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something, right? And Peter said, nah, I have no silver, I don't have any gold, but I do have, I'm going to give it to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand, the right hand, and raised him up. And immediately, I mean, picture this. Immediately, this lame man. Now, the Bible tells us that he's been that way for 40 years. You can imagine how weak and feeble he is, right? He said immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. You need that, right? And leaping up and stood, like the first thing that guy ever does is leap up and began to walk and he entered into the temple walking and leaping and praising God. Like he's never walked before. He saw everybody else walking around and leaping and praising God, but not him. Now his legs are strong. He's got a healing. He stands up and he's walking and he's leaping and he's praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him. I know that dude. That's the guy by the gate. And everyone, he says, were filled with wonder and amazement of what had happened to him. The man was crippled. Acts chapter 4, we'll get to next week, uh, says he was 40 years old, as I said. He was crippled. He, he, He came from his mother's womb that way. And, and, and I think what's so cool about this miracle is, you know, it's not like he was lazy or trying to get over or, I mean, everyone knew he's always been that way. It's not some sort of psychological issues he had, like he's been lame since he came out of his mother's womb. And why he was there is because the Jewish people were taught, the rabbis taught them one of the pillars of their faith was to give generosity, to give generously to people. To, 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 to care about others, to show kindness, to give aid to those who were un, you know, less fortunate. So a lot of the people in this condition would sit outside the temple knowing that if you're on your way to the temple to serve God, to, to worship God, to sacrifice, to pray, as you're, what are you thinking about? Hopefully you're thinking about what you're getting ready to do. And seeing someone there poor, seeing someone there broken, seeing someone there crippled, hopefully... You would want to to serve God that way and by caring for the poor, by caring for those who are less fortunate. Now, if you're from New York, what you do, at least what I do, is just walk right past people. That's what we do. We just like, you know, know, people are begging, and so you just keep walking. because That's what we do. You don't want to give any eye contact. Even if you want to give money, you know, you're going to give some money, you're going to keep going. But not here. Peter and John look directly at him. Hey, man, look at me. Look at me. I don't think many people used to look at him. That's what I think. I think a lot of people just walk right past him. And Peter and John say, look at me. Has eye contact with him. And now John, you know, is the writer of the gospel. According to John, he's the close friend of Jesus. And Peter and John are together going up to the temple. And the guy's like, listen, you got any money? He's like, no, we don't have any money. But I'll tell you what I do have. In the powerful witness and name of Jesus, get up and walk. He takes him by the right hand, and he stands up, and he's strong. And and he's walking, and he's entering the temple, and he's praising God. And what I want us to see, and I wrap our heads around in this miracle, and we're going to see this throughout Acts as well, is that God does not perform these miracles simply to display his raw power, as if he has something to prove to us. Because healing in and of itself does not necessarily point to the one and true living God. Because the Bible tells us that even Satan performs miracles. The enemy who is opposed to the gospel does signs and wonders. So just like in that day and in our days, signs and wonders are not the ultimate, Jesus is. You need to hear that. Signs and wonders are not the ultimate, Jesus says. And first thing I want us to notice is the very thing that this crippled man wanted, he didn't get. He was looking for money. He was poor, he was hungry, he was destituted, he was, you know, he got no help from anyone. He wanted money. But didn't get it, as the Italians say, you know, he got un he's got nothing. He got no money from them. Why? Simply because they had no money? I think it's because what he was asking for wasn't what he really needed. What he was asking for wasn't what he really needed. Jesus does that often. We think we know what we need. We don't always know, do we? God knows what we need. And Jesus does that a lot. In fact, in Luke chapter 5, if you know the story, a bunch of friends find out that Jesus is in his house, and they go to the front door. They can't get in. So they climb up. There's a staircase going in those, uh, in those homes back in the day of Palestine, and they start ripping up the tiles. Remember the story? And they, and they, they got this guy in a mat who's, been, who's paralyzed, who's, who's crippled like this man. And, and they lower him down in the middle of this crowd. I mean, you can see the dust flying. And everybody's like, "What the?" You know, and the roof opens up, and down the mat, the friends are just bringing him down. And Jesus looks at him and says, "Your sins are forgiven." Now, I don't know if the man wanted to say, um, "Maybe you're missing something here. I'm on a mat, I can't walk, and you're telling me my, my sins are forgiven." That's not really what I'm here for, just in case you're wondering. But Jesus looks at the heart of this man and realizes that what this man needs is not first and foremost to walk, but to have his sins forgiven. And if you know the rest of the story, it goes that that the scribes and the Pharisees said, who is this man that he says, your sins are forgiven? Only God can forgive sins. They're right. Clear, clear indication of the deity of Jesus Christ and Jesus says, Listen, what's easier? Sins are forgiven, or take up your mat and walk? But so that you know that I have authority, so that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, get up, young man. Take up your mat and walk. You know what the man did? He immediately rose up, picked up his mat that he'd been lying on, went home praising and glorifying God. Sounds like our story. All. Luke tells us that after he got up <laughs> Just about leaping and praising God It says and amazement seized them all And they glorified God and were filled with awe S- Same thing happened Sounds like a lot like our story There's another story Luke chapter 8 See Luke's tying this in Remember he wrote Luke and Acts Do You remember the woman who had a bleeding disorder Twelve years Mark tells us she spent every dime she had She, had, she was broke like the man in our story She had no money For 12 years, this woman could not stop bleeding. Now, it's bad enough to be a woman in that culture, but to be a woman with a bleeding disorder was a lot worse, a lot worse. Humiliated, rejected. Kicked to the side. And they would tell her, if you know anything about that story, they would tell her there are several ways, things that you could do. You could, you could try these different formulas. I mean, one of them is, is you know, um, carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer and put it in a, in a cotton bag in the winter, and you'll be healed of your blood flow. There's some crazy, superstitious things that they tried to do to help her. But the law of Moses is pretty clear. She was un- unclean. She was ceremonially unclean. She was perpetually unclean. Everything she touched became unclean. She was ostracized. She was kicked out of the temple. She was kicked out of the community. She had no human contact at all. She couldn't get into the synagogue. She couldn't get in to worship. So what does she do? She sneaks up and touches Jesus' garment. And what happened? She's healed. Did she just leave? Nope. Jesus turned around and said, who touched me? I think he knew. And they're like, are you kidding? Lord, there's like 50,000 people here. Everyone's touching you. No, no, no. Someone touched me. The power went out. She came for healing. And what does Jesus do? Jesus confronts her. Confronts her superstitiousness, her her, uh, ways of going about healing. And he says to her, if you know the story, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. In other words, it was me. If she had touched Jesus and left, she would have said, oh, up! Oh, you know, I tried several different things. This, this, this one, fi- this one thing finally worked." And Jesus, is like, "No, no, no, no! You're going to go public, and you're going to see who I am. Because what you need is not primarily the blood flow to stop. What you need is for me to call you daughter. It's for me to be in a relationship with you. That's most important. This is not just another superstitious remedy that worked. My daughter." your faith in me has given you healing. Jesus speaks to her and tells her, don't just come to me to get your immediate and obvious needs met. I could do that, but come to me for a transforming relationship with me. That's what Jesus tells her. And he, Jesus, gives her so much more than what she expected. So much more than what she wanted. Jesus, I... I need to be healed. I need to walk. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. I need the blood flow to stop. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. Acts chapter 3, our story. It says that after Peter said, I don't have money for you, but what I have, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. I know you think you need money, but what you really need is me, is Jesus. Jesus. I know that you've been suffering since you were born. I know that you've been poor all your life. But once, the most important thing you need is to have your sins forgiven in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was born, the one who ministered, the one who was crucified, the one who rose from the grave. Now, when the Bible says in the name of Jesus, it's not hocus pocus. It's not this kind of, um, you know, formula. Uh, That, you know, in the name, anybody could just say in the name of Jesus. No, it points to his personhood. It points to his power. It points to his authority. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the one you crucified, the one who rose from the grave. He is the object of our faith. It's not just faith. His faith in Jesus. And in a very real sense, what Peter is doing here is extending the ministry, the healing ministry of Jesus to this man. And after his feet and his ankles were made strong, he got up leaping and notice what he did? He went into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Like the woman who was Ostracized from the temple, now could go back in because the bleeding disorder had stopped. This man who was ostracized from the temple could now leap and jump into the place of worship. He doesn't have any blemishes anymore. He can go in leaping and praising God. Let me tell you some of you are suffering now, some of you have suffered. In the past, and some of you are entering into suffering, you don't even know. But I will tell you something, and I say this carefully, gently, but I love you. One ounce of sin is a million times worse than 10,000 times of suffering. Because sin blocks our relationship with our God. Sin keeps us out from the kingdom of God. Sin keeps us in and away from eternal life with Jesus into eternal torment in hell. What we all need more than anything is forgiveness of our sins. I'm not trying to make light of suffering. Please hear me. Been down some roads as well. But what the greatest need that you and I have is the forgiveness of our sins. Verse nine, that all the people saw him walking and praising God. It wasn't simply that he was just like, wow, we know that guy. He looks really happy. <laughs> look how look how happy he is. He sat near the core of the gates in the, outside the area, and now he's inside. Now he's worshiping. He was lame and blemished, blemish, but now he has received healing. And, and, and this, this time not only had... Physical healing, it's not just that he was healed and that he could walk, but he had found spiritual acceptance as well. He was now entering into the temple of worship with everybody else. For the first time, he was allowed into the temple. Now he's on the inside testifying and witnessing to the work in the person of Jesus. Now, I don't want you to miss this. When it says praising, leaping and praising God, in what they call the the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, Luke uses the same word found in the Greek Old Testament in Isaiah 35, which points directly to the work and the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah. Any Jew in that day would have saw that or read this passage, knew what Luke was saying. Isaiah chapter 35, verse four, say to those, this is all about the messianic kingdom, all about the coming of the Messiah, say to those of an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Isaiah 35, 6. Then shall the lame man leap, is our word, like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. They knew exactly what Luke was saying. They knew exactly. In fact, so much so, that that's Peter's response. I want you to know that verses 1 through 10 talk about the miracle, and verses 11 through following is a response to the miracle. Peter's responding to them saying, you see this? This is what it is. And he points to who? He points to the Messiah has come. The Christ has come. I mean, everything's about Jesus. That's why it's so Christocentric because they were waiting for the Messiah who would do these things. You see what happened to this man. It's because the Messiah has come. They were making a connection for his Hebrew Fellow man. Before we leave this, I just, want, I just want to, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but let me just say one thing. One of the things that people teach from the pulpit, which I do not, is that all Christians have the right to be healed. You may hear that, you may have heard that. That in the atonement, that when Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins, he then opens a the door and allows every single one of us to be healed. So if you're not healed, then it's your fault. You don't have enough faith. I don't know how much crueller you can get to someone who is suffering than to say something like that. Does God heal today? Yes. We've had two miracles of healing in our church in the past two weeks of people who were sick, that was bleak, it didn't look good, and God brought healing to their bodies. Can God do it? Absolutely. Does God always heal? No. I don't know the reason or the answer. But I do know what the Scripture says. The Scripture says even Paul, who was, who was a, you uh, will see later on, had pow- power coming from him, and God was doing great work through him. Handkerchiefs were healing people with the apostles that day. And yet in Timothy, he says, I left Trophimus, which is a man, ill at my latest. I was on my missionary journey. He got sick. I left him here so they could care for him while I moved on. He wasn't healed. Paul himself said that a thorn was given to him in his flesh. He said three times I prayed. Paul, you didn't pray hard enough. Man, I prayed. You sure? You got it all right? Yeah, I prayed three times. What did the Lord tell you? He said nope. Handle it. You'll be okay. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. This is all to keep you humble, Paul. So Can God heal? Yes. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. But God is always good. And God always knows what we need more than what we know. God can heal, but he doesn't always heal. Do we pray for healing? Absolutely. We've anointed people with oil and we pray. But not in a pagan way. And I I say that because what people do is they say, let's read this verse, we'll say these words, we'll get God, to do that and we'll put him in a corner and you have no choice. Let's get him. God, we're saying this now because it is in your name and we said, and we're trying to, that's paganism. We're not trying to trap God and now he's like, oh, you got me. You said those magic formula and now I have to do it. That's That's what it really looks like. Rather, we come as his children, we come to dad and we say, father, dad, Abba, this is what's going on. I pour my heart out to you. I know you have the power to heal. I trust you do, but I trust you greater than that. Sort of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before the king. Oh, king, we're not worshiping you. You could throw us in that fire, and we'll burn like, you know, a roasted turkey. God can save us, but if he does, cool. If he doesn't, I'm still not worshiping you. It doesn't really matter because I'm not going to be disobedient. God will spare me. That's faith. That's trusting God. That's trusting God. And God uses all kinds of ways to heal, doesn't he? Doctors, nurses, shelters, health aids, therapists, it goes on and on. I say that, and I say that carefully, but I say that, I mean that. Because the doctor who's serving, the nurses who are serving, the people who are helping you woke up and breathed God's air. That's his. They woke up this morning because God said so. All of it's grace. Amen? All of it's grace. Getting through school, learning, you know, all of its grace it's all by god's grace all by god's grace this miracle that we see in acts chapter three in our text this morning is teaching us that god knows what we need more than we know what we need and it's not just just seeing the raw power of god what's central to this is the person and the work of god and let me tell you the greatest healing of all is of the heart The fact that we can be reconciled to God. Where we're at a place of utter desperation, crippled in a sense spiritually, can't reach God no matter what we do. We're in total despair. There's nothing we can do. We're totally dependent upon him. And then he reaches down by grace and reconciles us through the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the greatest miracle. That is the greatest, I should say, work of God in our lives that we need more than anything. Okay, so let's, let's keep that in mind as we look at miracles. It's pointing to something. It's pointing to Jesus. And you'll see the message here. If I could sum it up, verse 11 and 12, we see what's going on. He clung to Peter and John. All the people were astounded, ran up to him in, in the portico of Solomon's. And Peter saw it. He addressed the people. He said, men of Israel, why do you wander at this? Why do you stare at us? Stop looking at me. As though by our own power and piety we have made him walk. In other words, Pete's like, look, I'm no witch doctor. This is not about magic, so don't stare at me anymore, because it's not about me. And and you know, think about it for a minute. There's not a whole lot of health care, and I'm not trying to be political. Can't get on the website, right? And here comes a guy. Here comes a guy who's like not charging copays. There's no hospital, you know, he's healing people. Well, people are gonna get pretty excited. Hey, you know, I got this going on. Hey, let's bring you know you can understand why people are kind of in a frenzy. Like, yo, people getting healed around here. It's free. Let's go. You know what I mean? So it's understandable. Um, it, you know, that's what's going on. So he knows his audience. Look what he does. Verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I'm going to tell you about this, he says. And the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and asks for a murderer to be granted to you. Sounds just like the sermon in chapter 2. He loves telling people how they murdered Jesus. He just loves it. And Peter goes back. Because he's got a Jewish audience. He's going back to, to Abraham. L- let me tell you about Abraham. Recently we studied the book of Genesis and we saw the promise, Genesis 3.15, that, that Christ would come. Yes, his, his heel would be bruised, but he would crush the head of Satan, the proto the first gospel, Genesis 3.15. And then we saw the, the lineage traced from Adam all the way to Abraham and God makes a covenant promise with him about a land that they will inherit, about a lineage that the Lord uh, will, will bless his children. That's why it says Isaac and Jacob. But it's also about the Lord himself will come through the seed of Abraham that the Lord will come, that the descendant of Abraham will, will be the Messiah himself. And he's like, look, guys, you're Jewish like me. You know these stories like I do. And let me tell you, Jesus is that promised Messiah. You delivered him over. You denied him. You asked for a murderer instead. And, and I will tell you, within those passages of Scripture, it's all about the Messiah. The names, the, the, the Holy and Righteous One uh, is all pointing to the Messiah. And you go down with me to Verse 22. He talks about Moses. He said that Moses said in Deuteronomy 18. How there was come another prophet like me. That you should listen to him. He's talking about the Messiah. And he says even Moses spoke about him. Verse 24. He says even all the prophets including Samuel. Who came right after Moses. He's pointing to Jesus. He's pointing to the Messiah. And then of course Abraham Genesis 12. That he made a covenant with him. And what he's doing he's saying Listen. Listen. Your whole Bible, New Testament wasn't written yet, your whole Bible is pointing to Jesus. Abraham, Moses, prophets, it's all about Jesus. How do you understand the Old Testament? He says, look at Jesus. Peter is saying every major figure of the Old Testament, be it Moses and David and Abraham, are a foreshadow of Christ. That's what he's getting them, trying to get them to see, that Christ is the ultimate prophet. Christ is the greater Moses. Christ is the ultimate king. He's greater than David. He delivers us and, and rules over us as no one else could. And Christ is the ultimate universal blessing. Yes, he said to Abraham, in your seed the whole world will be blessed. It's Jesus. He's trying to point them to Jesus. And then with, with Christ fixed in their mind, verse 15 but you killed the author of life but that's okay because god raised him from the dead god raised him from the dead to this we are witnesses this is the truth and it's in his name by faith in him has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that that is through jesus has given the man this perfect well health in the presence of you all peter saying Do you see this one? The one that you killed is the one that gave him life. The one that you buried in the tomb, the one that God rose from the grave. God raised him and glorified him. He's in heaven in a glorified body. He's pouring out his spirit. He's enabling these miracles to take place. It's about Jesus. And although they didn't say, well, what should we do? As he said in chapter 2, Peter goes on and tells them anyway, verse 17. Brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did the rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of his prophets that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Verse 19, is it up there? No, let me get the next one over. Verse 19, look at me at verse 19. What do we do? Repent. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed For you. Repent. Metanoia. Turn. It means more than just being sorrow over sins. It it literally means a change of direction. A change of mind. It's part of the will. It's part of the emotion. It's part of our thinking. We're not turning from our sin. We're recognizing we're not only sinful, but we have sinned against God personally. And then what does he say? He says, turn back to God. In the Jewish mind, when, when Peter says to them, repent turn and turn to god and look what he says so that what times of refreshing may come well first he says that your sins may be blotted out you see that that's a very interesting word the word blotted out means to be wiped away it was used of erasing ink from a, a papyrus uh parchment that they would write on the washing away of the ink Clearing it out to be to be written on again, it, it removing letters. It's 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 an opportunity, uh, or it's a, it's a, it's pointing to the fact that when God cleanses us and washes our sins, He blots them out. They're gone. You know what I mean? It's invisible ink. They're blotted out. They're washed out. They're no longer there. He no longer holds them against you. So repent so that your sins may be blotted out and refreshing, times of refreshing. That's a great word. Underline that in your Bible. It talks about being relieved. It talks about re-energizing. It's a refreshing of the conscience. It's a cleansing of our minds. It's 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 a freedom. There's joy in repentance, folks. Repentance is not something that we should run from. It's a gift we should run to. Because our sins are blotted out. There's refreshing to be had. You know, sometimes we feel bad because we do bad. I was talking with a brother the other day, you know, talking about guilt. It's like, well, you know, they're really feeling bad about it, but they really, you know, it wasn't right. Like, yeah, feel the weight of that. That's okay. And then feel the weight of it lifted. Sins blotted out. Refreshing of the Lord repentance is good it's healthy it's necessary there's joy in it and thirdly look what he says. not only is there blotting out of our sins not only is there refreshing of our souls but third and our final point is verse 20 you can turn there with me that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the lord and that he may what send the christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until when the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. There it is, folks. The miracle is pointing forward to the day. The miracle is pointing forward to the day of total restoration. To restore means to, to restore something from, uh, back to an earlier condition. It's about renewal and regeneration. And what he's saying is it's not just us that are being renewed. It's the whole cosmos that will be renewed miracles are never just a naked display of power as if the goal of the miracle is to look and go wow look at that i mean the apostles could have said hey watch me fly around the room a little bit or watch me pick up these boulders and look wow that was great that wasn't the point that's not the point of the miracle have you ever noticed that Miracles, if you read the New Testament, the majority of the miracles that happen in the New Testament have to do with suffering and, and, and brokenness and dealing with problems and troubles. Why? Because the miracle's pointing to something. God did not invent suffering. God did not invent blindness, disease, and being lame from birth or created a world filled with death. Just read Genesis 1 and 2. There was shalom, there was peace, there was beauty, there was no suffering, no poverty, no one crippled from birth. Suffering came into existence because we turned from God. It was then that hunger became a problem. Everything fell apart, sickness and disease and death became a reality. And what these miracles are pointing to or it's telling us that God did not create a world like that and that miracles are point to a day when there will be a complete restoration it's glimpse of what god is going to do when he finally comes back and restores all things we think of miracles as this interruption of the the natural order that god steps in and interrupts natural uh you know uh order um he just like he breaks in and, and he interrupts this natural order but if you look at the miracles many of them point to the restoration of the natural order when Jesus raised the dead or healed a person who was crippled from birth, healed the blind man, he was restoring the natural order. The way things were supposed to be when he restores the whole world. The miracles of God point to the fact that God is an enemy of suffering and he will do something about it in the end. Many of you know my good friend David Chowanhill, who was blind When he got sick and he was dying, we talked a lot about the reality that when he passes away from the world, from this world, when he opens his eyes for the first time, he's going to see Jesus. And we talked about that, we cried about that, we rejoiced about that. So as Christians, we have this ultimate hope. And therefore, we're not only concerned about spiritual well-being, which is our primary thing, but we care about touching people's lives, helping them in their poverty, helping them in their sickness, helping them when they need help, helping them when they can't do things on their own because we do it not just to do it. We don't do it to feel good. We don't do it because it's the right thing. The primary reason we do it is because that's the way it's gonna be. That's the hope we have because of Jesus. He will give sight to the blind. He will give uh, abilities to walk to the lane. He will end hunger and poverty and disease. We know that for sure. So we can go out and do those things, touching lives, loving people, serving people, generous to people, caring for people. We could go out and do those things with the hope that someday that's going to be a reality. Christians are the only ones that can do it that way because our faith is in the King. Who has already begun doing that. To show us what it's going to be like. We live in a time of the already of the kingdom. Christ has come. The gospel is here. Which means the powerful miracles are available. But we're in the not yet of the kingdom. Which means it's not completely done. It's not fully matured. It's not come completely. And that death is still part of life. Or still part of this decaying world. It's not a part of life. It's a part of the curse. which Jesus broke and And conquered. So how do we get through life with all the suffering and brokenness of this world? The hope is in the miracles that were performed giving a glimpse of what's going to come. For all those who trust in the message that's been proclaimed that his name is Jesus, the promised Messiah who will one day give those who trust him ultimate healing, life eternal with him. That's the hope we have. That's where the miracle points to. As the band comes up, let us pray. Father, we, we thank you for this recorded miracle in the New Testament. We thank you, Father, for the work that you are, have done, the work that you are doing. We don't want to get sidetracked from the reality that the greatest need we have is you, is a relationship with you, is to have our sins forgiven, to be reconciled to our Creator. That is and has an eternal consequence. We thank you that our God and Savior went to the cross. So to, to, to meet us or to, to allow us, I should say, to have our sins forgiven, the greatest need was cared for and done for us on the cross of Calvary. So Father, we want to rejoice in that. We want to look for ways that we can relieve suffering and pain and, and, and heartache and destruction and brokenness in this world knowing, Father, that you will one day restore all things. It won't be until Jesus returns. We understand that. But help us, Lord, to declare the gospel with our words and witness about Jesus, but also our deeds that we may serve people like Jesus too. So, Father, we love you. Let us respond right now with singing with our whole heart for your glory, your honor and the hope we have in you. In Jesus' good name, amen.